All right, let me tell you a little bit about the study before we dive in. So the study actually came about after one year, my husband and I decided we wanted to redirect our kids' attention back to Jesus around Christmas time. You know, it gets really commercialized and everybody's writing out their Christmas wish list and we're like, wait, why are we celebrating? So I, we wanted to redirect our kids' attention back to Jesus. And we did that by looking up prophecies about his birth in the Old Testament. And we kind of traced the whole storyline of the Bible by doing this. Well, I've turned that in, but that was several years ago, but since then I've developed it into this study which is actually kind of framed as a detective story where you will be searching the scriptures for yourselves to find out clues to answer this question, who is the king of glory? So from its earliest pages, the Bible talks about this mysterious figure. And then in, from the earliest book, we discover that he's a king. So that's why I've named it, who is the king of glory? But Think of it as a detective story where you're going to mine the scriptures for yourself and you're going to figure out, you're going to answer questions. Who is he? What's he going to look like? What's he going to do? So the Bible tells one story, and that might surprise you since it has 66 books, right? But it's one story that binds the whole thing together. So do you like stories? Do you, Maybe some of you like romance novels. Will anybody own it? <laughs> Okay, maybe you're more of the fantastical. You like a damsel in distress and princes and dragons. Well, this story is for you. Do you like stories about heroes and villains? Maybe you want to immerse yourself in a story that includes prophecies or political intrigue. How about epic battles? Maybe you just prefer a good old, un, good old fashioned story about an underdog getting where that person finally gets justice. Okay, well, the Bible is all this and more. You know, over the summer, my family spent some time in Europe, and we have some good friends and mission partners in England that we got to spend time with, and they were lamenting the fact that Queen Elizabeth's health was declining. And you know why they were lamenting this? Because she had reigned for 70 years with character, with very few scandals of any kind, and they simply just do not have the same kind of confidence in her son, now King Charles III. Well, don't we all feel that way a little bit? Do you kind of long for a just a statesman with character to come and restore some order and peace to our government? I mean, we all want to see a world free of dirty politicians and self-serving leaders. Well, this story this very true story of the Bible will offer a lifeline to you and to everybody like you who just looks around at all the hardship in this world and ask, who can fix it? So in fact, only this story, the story of the Bible and its mysterious hero king can fill you with hope and confidence that one day all will be made right. So welcome. I'm really glad each of you is here. I hope you're ready to dig in, and I am praying and trusting that God will use this time in his word in your life, just like he has mine. So a little housekeeping item. I just want to give you a brief word about the homework in the study. So life is busy. I know that. And there will almost certainly be weeks where you can't finish the homework, or you maybe can't even start the homework. And that is okay. So please don't let that keep you from coming back. Um, 
because during the discussion times, both before I teach and after I teach, you'll have a chance to kind of review what went on in the study, and um, I will cover the material that you're studying in your lessons. So the homework will certainly enrich your experience. Um, you won't fall terribly behind if you're unable to complete it. But this is my recommendation. So there are cumulative summaries after every scripture reading in your homework. If you can't do the homework, read the scripture for the week and maybe read the cumulative summary. So these are designed to kind of corral all the information that we've gathered about the King of Glory into one place. So I'll, I'll be collecting it each week and we'll just pull it along as we move to the next lesson. And I've actually asked your table leaders today to read that first summary on chapter 9 before you leave. And then you'll just leave and you'll be nice and prepared for the second lesson. But let's go ahead and turn our attention to the study. So this is a study, first and foremost, about Jesus. So, But I want you, for the sake of the study, to just set aside everything you know or think you know about Jesus. And I want you to let God to tell his own story. So let God's words reveal who Jesus truly is. And to do that, well, we have to start at the very beginning of the story. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open it to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, our first lesson is entitled, A Snake in the Garden. And what I want you to see and remember from this lesson in particular is that all the brokenness and all the devastation that you see in our world and that you experience in your life, well, you can draw a straight line from all of that straight back to this snake in the garden. But before I introduce you to that snake, let me tell you about God, because that is where the story begins, and it's where the story ends. In the beginning, it says in the very first words of the Bible that God created the heavens and the earth. And what follows is a creation account, how in six days God brought form and order to this earth. He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the water from land. He distinguished between sky and earth. And then he began to fill out all these things, okay? He filled out day and night by giving each of them various kinds of lights. He filled the waters with all kinds of fish and other creatures, I mean, some of which we have yet to even lay our eyes on. He filled the sky with birds and the earth with all kinds of creatures, great and small. And then finally, on the sixth day, he made man and woman in his own image. So look at Genesis 1.28 with me. This verse is central to our understanding the Bible's story. The first sentence reads, and God blessed them. Okay, so that word blessed, you know, it's kind of overused in our society, right? But it's going to appear over and over and over again throughout the story of the Bible. And this actually isn't even the first time it's used in the Bible. If you look back at verse 22 and 23, you can see that God first blessed the sea creatures and the birds, enabling them to multiply and fill the waters and the sky. But here... God is blessing the people he has made in his image. Now, we're going to take we're going to pause for a moment because I actually want you to look with me at page 83 in your workbook. So, page 83, this is your repeated words chart, and you're going to work with this chart every week noting words that are repeated in the story. 
So on the next page, page 84, it's just a continuation of the chart. But if you look from the second row from the bottom, you see that grouping of words of bless, blessing, and blessed. Okay, the first use of that word, as I just said, is in Genesis 1.22. And I did not mark that for you. So if you want to mark it in your repeated word chart, you can do that now. But I did mark the second use for you, and that is the verse we just read, Genesis 1.28, where God blesses the man and the woman he created. So I want you to watch for this word and record any reference where you find it during our study in that box right there next to bless, blessing, blessed. And as you can see, I've given you a pretty good start, but there will be many more. Okay, so that is the repeated words chart. We'll go back there again, so keep it handy. But back to our story, back to Genesis 1. What does it mean that God blessed Adam and Eve? Well, to answer that question, we need to read what God says next. So similar to his blessing on the birds and the fish in verse 22, he says to the man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, God's blessing on Adam and Eve is a fruitfulness in the work he commissions them to do. And that is the work of filling and ruling. Okay, so God, not only does he breathe his own life into them, he gives them a purpose. He gives them good work to do. And wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody loved their work or if everybody was good at their job? Well, that was Adam and Eve's experience. They had the guarantee of success. So they have this work of subduing and ruling, and they live in a garden that they need to cultivate and they cause it to just spread so that the whole earth is covered with this beautiful garden of Eden. And they're charged with filling it with more and more image bearers just like them. And spoiler alert, if you turn to the final pages of our story, you'll see that despite everything that happens between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22, that the whole earth has indeed become this lovely garden city filled with God's image bearers who rule over it with God. So although things are about to take a really dark turn, in the end, we know all will be well. But now, for the blessing of Genesis 1, there aren't yet any snakes in the garden, right? Adam and Eve live and work in a world where they don't have to fight or struggle for food. Okay, there is no fear of going hungry. In fact, their food was literally like right there for the picking. If you look at Genesis 1, and 30, you can see that God had already provided their food and for the food of the animals that they were to rule over and care for. And Genesis 3 makes it clear that the man and woman carry out this work under the oversight of their good and loving creator who is with them in the garden. Okay, this is paradise. And God himself looks at the world he has made and at the people he breathed his life into, and he's happy. Because as it says in verse 31, he sees it and he says, it is very good. Well, part two, 
Genesis chapter 2. Here we get the law of the land. So this chapter fills in details about how God created man and woman, but it also establishes the laws of the land, or law singular, I should say, because there's just one, just one law. Look at 2.16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve could eat from the abundance of seed and fruit-bearing plants and trees in the garden, all but one. And don't let that fact escape you. In a garden of abundance, just one fruit tree is off limits. So right away from the beginning, we can see God is very clear about his one law, and very clear about the steep consequence for breaking it. The consequence was certain death. If you eat, you will surely die. Not necessarily on the day that you eat it, but the day that you choose to eat it, you secure your death. But here we are in paradise. We have a beautiful home. We have satisfying work with the guarantee of success in it. Friendship with God and clear conditions for how to keep this paradise forever. Turn the page, chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 reads, Now the serpent, and I will call the serpent the snake from here on out, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Okay, so the snake singles out the woman, who at this point in our story is still unnamed. So what have you noticed so far about names in our story of beginnings? We really don't have many names. So Adam is the man's name, and we first see that mentioned in chapter 2, verse 7. But his name, lowercase Adam, can also be used as a common noun for any man, or it can be used generally to talk about mankind, so including men and women. So Adam is named for his his function here. He's the first human. He's the representative of all our race, male and female, and he is named for that function and role. For now, Eve is simply called the woman because she was formed out of man. But Adam will eventually name her, and she too will be named according to her function and role. Even God himself here, though, has yet to reveal his personal name. So he is God, and that is a term for a supernatural power. And it is clear from the beginning of this book that this is a God like no other God. But even God has a personal name that he will reveal to his special people. And it is a name that reveals his power, his role, his character. And then we have the snake So he's the antagonist of our story, but he is given no name. He's simply called the snake or the serpent in ESV. But he does have a name, and we'll come, he has many names. We'll come to hear those as the story goes on. But he'll, he'll be called the devil, the evil one, the enemy, the accuser, based on his roles, right? In Revelation, he's another beast, this time a dragon. But again, each of his names reveals his character and his role. So not many names yet here in our story, but this is only the beginning. That's what Genesis means, right? It's a book of origins. So think of this book like a garden. Makes sense? 
God is planting seeds. He's planting a garden from seed, depositing a seed here and a seed here. And we're going to see all those seeds begin to grow and develop. But for now, the seeds that we have, we have a good creator God, one that made people in his own image, breathed his life into them, gave them good work to do, lives with them in the garden, blessed them, provided all the food they would ever need. Okay, We know he's good based on what he has made. Now we have a man and a woman. And now we have an enemy who is bent on destroying everything God has made. So the snake addresses the woman. Okay, he's kind of subtle at first, right? He gets her attention, but he deliberately misconstrues God's words. So in verse 1b, he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Already, he is casting doubt on God's character here. I mean, what kind of God would do that? Make all this lovely fruit and not let you eat it? Well, Eve knows that's not true, okay? So she clarifies, adding in a detail that as far as we know, God never said. But in verse 3, she essentially says, no, we can eat from the trees in the garden, except that one in the middle, we can't even touch it, lest we die. Well, the snake kind of goes for the kill on his next response. Direct denial of God's words. You will not surely die. And then he attacks God's character again. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And there's the lying. You can feel its power, right? God, maybe God hasn't told us everything. He's withholding information. He is deliberately withholding something good from me. Maybe he doesn't want me to be happy. Well, in Eve's case, it appeared to her that God was preventing her from becoming like him. So because the fruit looked delicious and she thought she, be- she could become wise like God, she picked the fruit and ate it. Now remember, Adam and Eve were told to rule and have dominion over all the creatures of the garden. And right now would be a really good time for her to exert her rule over this snake that is lying to her. And that's not my original idea. I did come across that in the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. But Eve neglects to rule. She neglects the commission that God has given her. She does not exercise that dominion. Instead, she gives the snake rule over her. She listens to him. She entertains his ideas. She doubts God, even allows herself to believe the snake's lies. And Adam, what's he doing? Well, in verse 6, he appears to be standing nearby, overhearing the entire conversation, and he does nothing. Instead, he listens to his wife, who is making a grievous choice, and he also eats the fruit when she gives it to him. Well, for the first time in their lives, Adam and Eve feel guilt, shame, and fear. Okay, those feelings were not a part of paradise. This is something entirely new. They have guilt because they've done wrong. The one law of the garden they broke They disobeyed God the only way they knew how. And by all appearance, they did this in short order. And Eve does not even have a a name yet. So it didn't take them long to obey God the only way, disobey God the only way they could. They experienced, so so they have guilt. They also have shame. 
because the fruit did open their eyes in a way, they now have an experience of evil. And their experience is completely different now. They sense their nakedness and they feel shame and embarrassment. And now, of course, they're afraid because they know God's judgment hangs over them. So what do they do? They hastily try to sew some leaves together, cover their bodies, and they run and hide from God. Well, the next thing we know, God is walking in the garden, as was his custom, and he calls for Adam. And, well, there really is no hiding from God, is there? The truth quickly comes pouring out, and just as Adam and Eve felt exposed and naked in their bodies, they now feel exposed and naked in their souls. And what do they have to say for themselves? Do they own it? No. They do the very human thing now, right? Adam blames his wife. Eve blames the snake. Well, God hears their excuses, and he turns from them to address the snake, whom he curses. And it is in this curse where Adam and Eve, guilt-ridden, ashamed, and scared as they are, they actually hear a message of hope and perhaps dare to think, maybe all is not lost. Now, we're going to return to God's words on the snake because that those verses, Genesis 13, sorry, Genesis 3, 14, and 15, when he speaks to the snake, that's our text for the day. And though it is just riddled with clues to answer the question, who is the king of glory? So we're going to cover that at the end. So we'll come back to that. But I want to talk about um, how God responds to Adam and Eve first. So after God curses the snake, he turns to Eve and then to Adam to pronounce their judgment for breaking his law. And what we see is that God does not rescind his original blessing on them, but we do see that that beautiful commission he gave them to rule and to be fruitful will now be painful and difficult. So Eve, she has a unique contribution to filling and ruling the world, and that is giving birth to children. Well, she is going to be subject to great pain now when she gives birth. And that this uh, pronouncement of judgment for her disobedience will just apply to all forms of childbirth. Because of what Eve did, this is why we experience all kinds of problems. Infertility, miscarriage, um, women who die when they give birth, the mortality rate among children, all these things are, are directly related to this judgment on Eve. But not only that, not only will there be difficult in childbirth, the sweetness of marriage will give way to strife, strife between the man and the woman as they begin now to kind of wrestle for headship. Well, in God's punishment on Adam, he actually breaks and curses his own creation, so that now the natural world begins to mirror the barrenness of Adam and Eve's hearts. Adam and Eve are broken, and so is the world they live in. So God curses the ground. You know, in paradise, all their work would have been blessed. Adam would have trimmed his bushes, and they would have grown exactly as he wanted them. He would plant seeds, and they would just produce with a very little effort, and they would produce abundantly. Well, now the ground is hard and unyielding. Weeds thrive. Plants produce poisonous fruits. Thistles and thorns will prick their legs and fingers. 
and harvests are not going to be quite so bountiful. Gardens aren't so keen on replicating and producing the right kinds of fruits. Drought and famine are a real threat. Their success is no longer guaranteed, and now their work is difficult. So Adam and Eve will eat, but only through toil and sweat. They will toil and sweat for the long years of their lives until their bodies die and return to the dust from which they were created. Well, after God delivers this judgment, it it is at this point that Adam names his wife, and he calls her Eve, because though she will face hardship in her task, she still is going to be fruitful. Her name means mother of all living. All right, chapter 3 concludes with God still providing for his creatures. So he, he looks at their little mess of fig leaves they tried to sew together, and he decides he'll give them something a little bit more permanent. He sews them animal skins together for their clothes, but then he exiles them from the garden. And out they go, away from God, away from his guidance, away from his words, and away from their beautiful home into a stark and much more barren landscape. But, and aren't you thankful for that but? They did not go without hope because God had promised them something and they believed God. And I can say that with confidence because of what happens next. And chapter four is where we'll pick up next week. But let's go back to God's curse on the snake, and let's kind of like a sponge, let's just like wring every little piece of information we can from his words. So at the top of your handout, I have Genesis 3, 14 and 15. I'm going to read that now, and then we're going to unpack it. All right. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so as we unpack this, I first want you to notice four key words. So maybe circle them in your text um, or on the handout. The words curse, enmity, offspring, and bruise. Okay, those are four little seedlings, right? We talked about that garden God is planting. Well, these are four seeds he's depositing in the ground right here. And we are going to watch these words grow throughout the semester or Bible study. I'm like totally in the school calendar. Okay, but and these words are also all on your repeated words chart on page 83. So why don't you turn there now and you can fill in some of the references as we go along. So first that word curse. This is the second row on your chart on page 83. Curse is the opposite of blessing. So it's blessings antonym. You have dry versus wet. You have night versus day. Here we have blessing versus cursing. God had blessed man and woman when he created them, but here he curses the snake. He also curses the ground in verse 17. So you can mark 317 on your chart. But he does not curse the man or the woman. He doesn't revoke his blessing on them, though he does introduce a lot of hardship 
and difficulty into that blessing. Let's look now at that word enmity. So this is just under curse on your chart. But the word enmity is a sad one to pop up after we've just spent time in paradise in the first two chapters of Genesis. But this word shows us that there's an enemy. Someone, something is working against God's purposes, actively trying to sabotage the blessing that God pronounced on his creatures when he made them. So the snake attempted to curse Adam and Eve. I mean, there was no confusion. We saw this, right? There was no confusion about God's one law or the steep consequence for disobeying it. So the snake tempted Adam and Eve to their deaths, which is why the apostle John will say, our adversary, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. He sought their deaths when he tempted them. But God doesn't curse Adam and Eve for their disobedience. And because they don't know it yet, they don't even know it yet, but somebody is going to bear that curse for them. So there is the curse of death for disobeying God's law, but they have somebody, even though they don't know it yet, who will come along and bear that for them. It is the snake instead who is cursed here for his efforts. Do I have any Harry Potter fans here? I see a couple people. Okay, yes. Okay, so like when Voldemort tried to kill baby Harry, right? And the curse reverberated back on him. That kind of sets the stage for the whole story. Harry Potter is the boy who lived. Well, this curse reverberates back on the snake, See, I told you, the Bible is the best story around. All other stories just kind of take their cues from the, the best story. Well, this is the first act of poetic justice in history. This snake is seeking to the death, the curse of God's creatures, and instead he is cursed in return. But something else we need to see here, something we find in that word offspring, which is the very first word on your chart. So God is establishing animosity here between the snake and the woman and between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. So from this offspring word, or other translations will say the seed of the woman, from that kind of language, we can see there is going to be a multiplication of enemies and the multiplication of conflict and warfare between this line of the serpent and between the line of the woman. So that this conflict, which began here in the Garden of Eden, is going to resurface over and over and over again across the pages of our story. And we can see that in those words, offspring and enmity. Well, in the course of the study, we will see that same story play out across the pages of the Bible. The offspring of the snake will attempt to curse the offspring of the woman, and always and forever, the result is the same. They receive a curse in return. They receive God's judgment, while God's people are blessed. So besides being able to draw a straight line, like I said at the beginning, besides being able to draw a straight line from all the hardship and difficulty and suffering in this life, here it is, all the way back to the garden and the snake in there, I want you to see this lesson from the beginning. Don't oppose God. 
Do not make yourself his enemy, or you will share the snake's curse. Now this warfare between the woman's offspring and the snake's offspring will have an outcome. What is that outcome? Well, we get our answer in the word bruise. So the woman's line is going to produce a hero. We, we see that it's an avenger who will bruise the head of the serpent. But in the next line, we see that this hero will bruise the serpent's head at personal cost. Okay, He is going to be victorious, but the snake will hurt him. He's going to bruise his heel. Now, we kind of think of bruise as uh, what you do to your shins when you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you clunk them on your bed frame. Anybody else have that experience? You get a bruise on your shin. Well, that is not what this word means here. If you look again at the chart on page 83, so you'll see the second row from the bottom. There's a family of words there. It's bruise, crush, dash, dispossessed, destroy. So these words are all conveying the same idea. It's, it's total destruction and total loss. So when we say the seed of the woman will bruise the head, we're saying he's going to crush. He will crush his head. He will destroy that snake. And, that's, and I will use that title frequently in the study. I will call um, this promised seed the snake destroyer or the snake crusher. So destruction is the enemy's future. But even so, he will wound his destroyer. We can see that from the earliest pages of scripture. This hero's victory will come with a cost. Okay, so can you see we've already learned some significant truths about the king of glory. Now flip over to page 89 in your workbooks. Okay, so this is the clue chart. And you're going to fill this out after reading every assigned text in the workbook. And we will probably often go through this um, as a group when we meet together. Okay, but this is a place to gather and record everything you've learned about the promised offspring of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And filling out this chart uh, will help you kind of answer the question. It will help us answer the question, who is the king of glory? And we're collecting all this data about him so we can answer that question with confidence. Okay, well... What does Genesis 3.15 tell us? Who is this person? We get several clues right from the beginning. Who is he? Let's look at that first column. What does your Bible say? Who is this? This is where we get biographical info. Where is he coming from? I heard somebody kind of mutter, mutter a word. What was it? <laughs> Good. It's the woman. It's the offspring of the woman. So and what are the implications here? Okay, obviously that means Eve is going to have children. And like all of God's creations, creatures, she's going to reproduce in kind. She's not going to have animal babies, right? She's going to have a human baby. So we know this promised one from the earliest pages is going to be a human child who descends from this woman. What else, what pronoun is used to refer to this human child? I heard it. Yeah, it's the masculine third person, he. This hero, this avenger, is going to be a man, a male descendant of Eve. So we know all those things right away from some of the earliest pages in the Bible. 
But that next column, what will he do when he comes? And here you want to list things like new titles he's going to bear, new roles he's going to play, job descriptions. So look at the verse. What's he going to do when he comes? Good. He's going to bruise the serpent's head. And we, we know what that means. He's going to destroy the enemy. But what else will happen in the process? Yeah, he's going to suffer, okay? We can see that right from the beginning. When he comes, he will destroy the enemy, but he will suffer. And then what about the why or the outcome column? That one's pretty self-explanatory. Obviously, the destruction of the snake, our enemy, that will be the outcome. Okay, now we're not going to get to that fourth column, the when column, for very many of our prophecies that is for you either to fill out on your own. You can kind of look up in the New Testament where these things come true or when they will come true. But, or throw this out there, if you take Bible study again next in the spring, you will see many, you will see how many of these prophecies are fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future in a study that Pam is busy working on. So maybe hold on to it till then, or if you want to, search it out now. Okay, um, before we close, and I give you time to discuss the questions that are on your table, um, hang with me just a little bit longer while I draw out four brief reflections on Genesis 1 through 3. So a couple things to remember here. First, this prophecy has a future fulfillment. So Eve obviously had no children before she sinned. So they would have to wait for babies to be born. And they had no idea. They were not told how long this process would take. Second, their death, just like the destruction of the snake, would be in the future. For now, they would go on living, but things would never be the same. Paradise is lost. And all Eve's children would be born into the same broken cursed landscape, and all Eve's children would be like their parents. They, would too, would be estranged from God, suspicious of him, subject to the lies of the snake. This is the new landscape out east of Eden. Third, as it is clear from the curse on the snake, God has never given up on his creation. So he had, and he has, a plan to fix it all. And it's a plan so marvelous and yet at times so bewildering, not one of us would ever have been able to come up with it ourselves. But even as early as Genesis 3, we know this master plan of God's to save his entire creation will unfold with the birth of a baby boy. Fourth, I feel like this bears saying in our current cultural climate, just want to add that what a beautiful honor and promise that God makes here, and especially for Eve, for the woman. You know, our society is increasingly uncomfortable with distinguishing between genders. Women are often at war with their wombs. Women today think 
They don't, they don't, they want to rid themselves of this idea that we are biologically and even how we're wired psychologically, we are meant to nurture and that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But they don't want babies unless they choose it, unless they can do it on their own terms and unless you're able to do both the mothering thing and break the glass ceiling. But I just want to reiterate that the ability to have children has always been God's unique blessing on women. This was a blessing prior to the fall. And even here, though Eve rebelled against God, he did not take that blessing from her. In fact, it was through Eve and through countless women who followed her and their unique privilege and blessing of being able to have children that this promised one from Genesis 3.15 could come. If Eve had not had children, there would be no promised one. So from the beginning, without the woman and her amazing life-giving ability, Adam would have been powerless to fulfill God's commission. And now outside the garden, there is no hope of an avenger without this blessing of childbirth given by a good God exclusively to women. All right, now you have some discussion questions. I'd like you to work through at your tables, but let me just close the lesson time and kind of open the discussion time with prayer. Dear God, we, we are in awe of you. Look at this world you have made, and even though fallen and cursed as it is, such beauty remains, just giving us a hint of what it was like and what it can be like again in the future. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for this hope that you give us from Genesis 3.15, that somebody, you plan to send someone to restore it all. And we, we know who that is <laughs> on this side of um, on this side of the timeline. We know exactly who that is, and we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for how he has come and destroyed the power of the snake. And I pray that if there are women here who don't yet know or understand the story, that you would open their eyes. Pray that you would use the time around our tables. Pray that you would use the teaching and, of course, the time in your word to draw all of our hearts out to you. Um, we confess that sometimes, like Eve, we can be suspicious of you still and doubt that maybe you're good, but, but you're so good. Look at this world you've made and how you provided for your children and how clear you have been in your communication to us. So I pray that we would trust in your goodness as we move forward and um, benefit from the study. Please make us more like your son through our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.